Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. Hi, Spanners here, just dropping in for a quick midweek buffet. Later in the show, we've got a fabulous interview with Mark Preston, who is not only one of the best Formula E bosses on the grid, but also spearheaded the technical team that launched the dream that was Super Aguri F1. I was smiling all the way through that interview. It's an interview that you can just melt into so I really hope you enjoy that as much as as I did. And a little bit earlier today, we caught up with Mike Caulfield, who was the head strategist at Haas, and he helped us be better armchair strategists and gave us a bit of a real insight, actually, into the driver mindset when they're picking what strategies they're going to try and approach in the race. So here it is now. Here at Mr. Apex Podcast, we consider ourselves trend setters, and that's why we had an F1 strategist on Mr. Apex Podcast before it was cool. Joining Matt and I today is Mike Caulfield, who was a strategist at Mercedes and at Haas. How's it going, Mike? Hey, yeah, good to be back. First question, who do you prefer, the Mercedes team or the Haas team? Who were the best I wouldn't say uh, sporting-wise, but who were just the better human beings? Yeah, I, I mean, the, the, the great guys at both teams. So I, 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 can't, I can't really split them up between the two there. Okay, but let me be nosy. There must have been a massive difference in atmospheres between a, probably the more corporate uh, Mercedes team and then maybe more of a privateer attitude in the Haas garage. Yeah, I mean... There are obviously different. There's the massive scales to the teams, which are different. So obviously, yeah, you've got your 
ladies who are close to a thousand people. Uh, Hass is, yeah, I mean, at best for 200, 250. Um, and I, I guess my role was slightly different between the two because I was traveling a lot more with the Hass. Well, I was traveling full time with Hass, whereas Mercedes, I was mainly factory based. So it's, it's, it, you're also with different groups of people. But again, at Mercedes, there was a, really good atmosphere back at the kind of race support where you're having like 20 odd people a lot of them are students so close to kind of my age at that time not anymore um <laughs> was a long time ago man. whereas and then and i think one thing to say about mercedes i mean it's maybe gradually starting to change now obviously you had um james go over to williams um but a lot of the kind of trackside engineers have been trackside since basically the BAR days. So there's, it, there's not been a huge turnaround in like a lot of the people there. So it's, um, yeah, it was, it was quite a, I guess when you're fresh into F1 and a little bit, a little bit, um, what's the word? Daunting to, yeah. to go with like these kind of people when, when you're kind of fresh and young and then you've got these experienced guys. Um, whereas Hasse, yeah, I was fresh in There's there are obviously, yeah, a smaller team and then there's a lot of guys who but you're all chipping in a little bit more because because of that aspect so there's definitely different atmospheres between the two but yeah i can't kind of split them there's i've got i've still got good friends at both teams so it's um i can't really say which one's better oh. well look look i tried my best to get some some raunchy insight there but um that's an interesting thing you say about mercedes where essentially when people aren't moving on because they're successful it's kind of like dead man's shoes so you're waiting for someone to retire or get sacked. And obviously, while everything's going well, there's little opportunity for movement. So I guess, you know, someone like James Valls, eventually to to go into a team principal role, they're going to have to move away. But it does seem like Mercedes, you know, they're the sort of organisation that is encouraging people and would be happy for James to, to do that and, and thrive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the thing. And they... He didn't have to do any kind of gardening leave of any extent, maybe a couple of months before when he went, and they would just go off into yeah, what is a very yes. senior role. And I mean, maybe it might have been different if he was approached to go to the kind of Ferrari or Red Bull for some reason, but <laughs> going somewhere like Williams, which obviously Toto has a bit of um, history with yes, us, is yeah. maybe that sweetened the deal a little bit. But yeah, I mean, even when I was there and like back in the really competitive days, I know when kind of guys from Aero or or stuff were going to like Alpine or or. Um, racing point yeah. as it was at the time um they were still kept involved pretty much right until the leave date oh, really? they might have had like maybe mm. yeah only a couple of weeks kind of a, a, a month or so i mean these are these are kind of less less senior roles so maybe like your head of aerodynamics might have been pushed aside a little bit more but <laughs> it was very encouraging at Merck. even when i would like left to go to house the same thing i worked right up until my leave date i had no garden leave whatsoever so it's um yeah, yeah. They, they they were quite trusting in in that sense to to certain teams, I imagine. I might have been talking about gardening leave a bit recently, and uh, one of the things that I, I was curious about, especially because I see that in the more junior roles that there there tends to be less emphasis on it, is that because especially at teams like Mercedes, you'd be very sort of compartmentalized with regards to the information you had as sort of like if I was a junior aero person looking at, oh, I don't know, like the the left rear corner of the car or the brake ducts there. There's not a huge amount of stuff that I'm going to take to like a Red Bull or Ferrari, a direct competitor. Whereas maybe if I'm in a more senior role, I have a much broader view of the overall concept and design of the car. Great question. Yeah, I think that's pretty much nailed on in in, in a certain sense for 
especially when it comes to your designers, yeah, it's I think the more the more senior you are, the more you potentially know about the processes and the actual designs and and I guess as well, like someone like Mercedes and why they've been so successful over the previous years, they used to have kind of a split between like three design teams. They'd have a current year, the next year, and the year after that, all working on it. So you you never you potentially where you are in that process would also depend on like how much information you may be going. If there was someone like working, say for example, now does people start to work with the 2026 regulations? It's kind of still quite new at the moment. Maybe that's fine. But as you get closer, if you've built up a couple of years of knowledge and experience, then there might be kind of an extent where, right, no, you've got a lot of information mm. and we don't want you to go somewhere. Um, but it's it's also quite interesting in terms of, I guess there's that kind of that etiquette. I mean, you're, you obviously can't forget your stuff. You can't forget things you've learned. But uh, at the same time, you, you, you're supposed to be kind of professional about it. Like, it's it's quite strange. Even as at Mercedes, I wasn't like the head of strategy. I wasn't yeah. any. I was just a strategy engineer there. But I actually tended to find out a lot more which was going on at a team like Mercedes than I did when I was at Haas. And it's kind of it was the one thing that really surprised me actually. But they weren't they weren't shy in kind of sharing information. Yeah. And then maybe it's different in certain departments. But for myself anyway, it was, I got to know a lot of lot of information, which helped me as well learning my career. And mm. again, it was that kind of sensibility. Before I left, it was kind of a case of. Well, there's certain things you can take, certain things you can't. You can't unlearn it, but just be sensible about what you do. And because obviously, if it comes yeah. out, we know it's come from you. <laughs> so it's kind of that kind okay. of. Okay. So for a um, second there, I thought you were going to say, "Oh, it's down to honour and integrity," but really, it's because it would be quite easy for for it to get busted. Oh, Caulfield's gone over to Haas, and all of a sudden, they've got our like S duct tracking. Uh, we're, there's only one way they could have got that. Uh, it's a good question, Matt. Well done. I was like, oh, look, Oz has DAS all of a sudden. Where did that come from? <laughs> uh, yeah, but look, the the real reason we've got you here is to grill you about some strategy stuff. And I saw you uh, tweeting shortly after the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix because on paper, from a strategy side, it kind of looked pretty simple. The safety car shook things up. Uh, but but how, how, did you, how did you see that? Because from our amateur point of view, we want to be good armchair strategists and certainly in the last few seasons we've got very used to undercut being king is that still the case it's gonna vary circuit on circuit now i think um i think somewhere like uh, saudi with the degradation which was quite low um it wasn't it wasn't as strong as it would be and especially like you said with the mm. with the um safety car coming out obviously that negates the the undercut anyway but um yeah you, you're looking for kind of big deltas between tires and for a start, a lot of things kind of go into the hard tire. That hard tire is potentially a little bit slower at the beginning of a stint. So that already harms the undercut because even though you're going onto a tire which can go longer, that initial warm up might be a little bit slower and you just don't get that kind of pace advantage of going to it. Even though your, your soft or mediums you're running the first had already degraded. Um, but I wouldn't say it's, it's, um, it's not an option. It's I think in certain tracks you'll mm. still see the undercut, which will be quite strong. Like in Bahrain, it was still it, the undercut was still strong. I think in Saudi it was just a bit lower degradation. The tyres were just that little bit more. Ah, so that's quite key. Street. So that's quite key. So what we're saying is more degradation gives you more options when it comes to to the undercut. So Bahrain, known for being quite an abrasive track, say for example. Alonso and Aston Martin were really aggressive with the undercut and kind of threw everyone. They sort of dragged Mercedes out of their their set strategy and and put them on the on the defensive. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, you've, you've answered your own oh, question. Sorry. Then. <laughs> I just wanted to show <laughs> yeah, off. Say, I wanted to show off done. that I've learned some things from you over yeah, these uh, exactly. interviews, Mike. No, um, but yeah, yes, yeah, you got the higher degradation. Yeah, you got more chance of an undercut going on there. So if, if you, but also it's that kind of crossover in it because if you go pull it too early, you're not obviously as high on on the degradation curve. So at that point, you don't get that. Acute, ah, as right. big benefit go into it so it's it's that kind of balance between when you go right. to start forcing other people in or not so the undercut is more effective the longer you go into that that stint so it's almost like a game of chicken yeah yeah and and the also the thing is as well is because as you go earlier in the stint the um the field's not spread out as much as well so you're more likely to go also drop into traffic so also you're looking for that window where you can drop into free air and that point also where you've got enough benefit of going onto a fresh set of tyres compared to a tyre which is sighted to the grade, yeah. Uh, well, I had a sort of follow-up question for that that seemed to be particularly the case at, at Jeddah, which is how much does being in, say, a DRS train affect your tyre degradation? Uh, that's, I mean, it's an interesting one. I guess it depends on how much, how much you're being actually restricted in terms of pace. Um, so if you're in like in a, in a, in a DRS train, you can't overtake, but you feel once you're in free air, you can go a second a lot faster. You're actually protecting your tires in that instance because you're not actually using your car to its full potential. So you're actually, you're actually limited by the car who's leading that train. Yeah. Um, and he's probably actually using his tires up more because he's having to defend. He's having to kind of make sure he gets all his entries, exits, all that correctly. Whereas you're kind of just thinking, oh, I am quite, quite got the pace to overtake him. So. I'd just sit here and wait and wait uh, as such. So like someone like, I think a primary example of it is kind of, um, it's Leclerc's stint on the soft and then everyone went, oh, the softs were really good in that first stint. But actually his degradation was only probably lower because his pace was actually masked early on because he was stuck in traffic with cars which were slower than him. If he'd been in free air throughout, you'd actually probably seen his actually degradation would have been normal. So you've got to kind of pace direct, uh, correct it for, for actually the traffic he's in and relative to his actual pace. And you also saw that's why he came in about lap 15, 16. I think his tires were probably actually close to being done by that point, which is is why he came in. Um, I mean, there's actually one other reason which he didn't actually need to, which actually cost him in the end because of the safety car coming out two laps later. But um, that's just something they may have missed at the time and weren't catching up on. Well, I, I think, did he not come in like right after Max finally passed him on the medium? So maybe that was uh, just an it, attempt it, to stay close? Well, it, it, no. So it, Max was just about to pass him. So he would have passed him down that straight and uh, dived into the pits. Uh, what he'd actually done, I think, looking at it, I think that might have been a slight reason because obviously he'd have lost a bit of time. But actually, Stroll was just being pushed out of his, win- his window. So Stroll had already made his stop and he was actually falling out of his pit window. And on that lap, um, Stroll was actually just edging out the window so it was a chance for Ferrari to, and Leclerc to actually overcut him in that sense um, what they actually failed to realise by looking kind of at GPS or something but Stroll's issue had already started so the reason he was dropping out wasn't to do with tyres or anything it's because oh. his issue had already started so if you looked at his straight line speed he was just going slower and slower every lap so they didn't actually need to kind of do that so even if they'd got overtaken by Verstappen and, and then made the stop the next lap. They would have still probably pushed out Stroll and obviously Stroll would have stopped. And obviously if they could have pushed that a little bit longer, they would have taken benefit of the safety car as well. Yeah, I love the fact that we are brand new talking about Ferrari strategy errors in, in races here. Um, I want to talk about Hamilton on the hard tire, but before I do, 
I, I went back and looked through all the, the various pet stops because Pirelli puts out the very nice infographic. Ah. And, I, and I wanted to like, – like originally I was like, ah, stroll. We want to talk about that. I'm curious about that. And then it, it, I realized that pretty much the entire midfield, with the sole exception, of, I think, of Sargent, actually pitted before the safety car and like really a bit earlier than I would have anticipated based on the strategy guidance Pirelli came do you know, uh, like, can you explain to me why that came about? Um, so looking at it, I mean, I obviously, and it's always the caveat I always put on it. It's like, I don't know the full in, ins and outs of teams. Uh, I don't know if it's like pre-planned in certain yeah. aspects or, or kind of there's an issue maybe with the cars. Some cars may be like slightly worse on tires than others. But from what I look at it, it actually all starts from um, from Piastri stop on lap one. So actually, Piastri starts coming back into the window and Norris, obviously, they've had their two ones for um, nose changes on lap one and lap two. And then as they come start coming in close, close to the window, you get um, Magnussen stopping and Bottas stopping. And then obviously that then causes a chain reaction for the other midfield cars to then stop there and, and cover it off, basically, in, in that respect. So it's all it's all kicked off of trying to cover. Because I think the belief was, even though Pirelli sent out that infographic, that the hard could last the whole race. So I think it was that that interesting one that if you may be struggling at that point on your mediums, you don't want to cost too much time and you've got to try and cover off, put yourself in free air, the hard's going to lift anyway. Whereas if you maybe leave it a couple of later, all right, you're more than likely going to be able to overtake um, overtake the McLaren, but you're going to lose that, cost that little bit of time doing that overtake. And then someone around you may either prevent the undercut or even get the overcut. So you just take that kind of safety option of of covering off and putting yourself in free air, really. Okay, well, I mean, I think we saw Piastri did the whole race minus one lap on the hard tires, so they wouldn't have been wrong about that. And and so just to follow up with my Hamilton question real quick, if you don't mind, it seems like he kind of got he got a little bit toasted by the timing of that safety car because it looked like <laughs> to me he was actually starting to get faster on those tires. Like there was a long stretch of time where they were going to be quite quick once they finally came in. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I'll... I mean, I was surprised that Hamilton started on the hard. And again, I don't know the ins and outs. I'm, I'm not going to criticize them. They'll obviously have the reasons. Um, I was actually expecting for Stappen to start on the hards because being out of position with a very fast car, it's mm. it's a strategy which will work regardless of kind of what happens. But Hamilton started on the hards last year and started on the hards this year. And the exact same things basically happened in two years. But a safety car comes out around this point. <laughs> which destroys any race uh. if you start on that hard tyre. Like, if you get a safety car around the lap 30 region, 28 to, like, 34, you're laughing because you're in that window, you gain an extra time, and you're on fresh tyres compared to everyone else towards the end. But now he has to take that because, obviously, the field packs back up, and now he's on a set of tyres which, okay, they yeah. can last to the end, but it's not premium to run the mediums for so, 30 laps. So, basically, when that safety car came out, it negated all the work of, okay, let's let's get these, these, these hards further into the race and then come out with fresh, stickier tyres on a lower fuel load and, and start making stuff up. So, yeah, effectively, exactly, yeah. Mercedes gambled that there wasn't going to be a safety car at a track where there's definitely going to be a safety car. I wouldn't say not a safety car. I think they were just hoping there was going to be a safety a later, car a bit later. later yeah. But it's it's an interesting view they take because it's it's a strategy you do kind of if you're if you feel your car's out of position. So yeah. like I said, with a Verstappen, you've got a fast car, but a qualifying issue has meant you're you're midway down the pack. So it just allows you to do something different because ultimately, if you're out of position, 
and you do the same as everything else, you're only going to kind of gain what you can gain on track. Whereas this one gives you that opportunity to make bigger gains. So when like Hamilton, I can't remember exactly where he qualified seventh, I think it was. It's like, I mean, unfortunately, that's not really where he's out of place for the Mercedes. That That's around the pace of the car, around that kind of fourth to seventh position. So you could have probably gained as many places on a standard medium hard strategy and just gain, going for the undercut, going for a good start performance, which you'd get off a medium tyre over a hard anyway. Um, and then, you, yeah, you, you potentially gain a couple places or, like say, a car falls out in front and you've got a chance of a podium. Where, like Basically, like what Russell happens, Russell basically, but he, he's on the edge of a podium. Um, yeah, and there's that opportunity. So, yeah, um, I'm... <laughs> Other than like hoping for a late safety car, it's for me, it just seemed a strange choice considering they did exactly this last year and it didn't happen work for them last year either. Okay, let's talk about Russell real quick. I, looking at it, felt like at the time he began to filibuster to not let Hamilton go by because Lewis was on different <laughs> tire strategy. Yeah, that, that there was enough tire left for Lewis to actually bother the Ferrari ahead maybe fight a little bit and slow them down. And had he done that, that would have brought the both of them back to Russell, who obviously had good tires at the end of the race. Do you think that was a bit of a missed opportunity? Like, like if you were in charge, would you have let Lewis by at that point? That's really what I want to know. Uh, I mean, uh, it's... Just I, on I the numbers, free, you know, somebody else's uh, problem to deal with the drivers after the race. Yeah, Just yeah, on yeah. the numbers, yeah. would don't you worry on, about the personalities uh, or egos. Yeah, okay. On <laughs> on the numbers, yeah, I like for me, if you if you got two cars together, one's clearly quick at the point. Yeah, given that opportunity, yeah, I, it's it's it would have like you said, if the worst case happens, he goes ahead, he doesn't cause any issues with the the, the anyone in front, and then you just invert them later on again. So. And best case, he actually gains position and the team moves out. So, like in terms of a team point of view, yeah, I didn't really see what the the benefit of not giving him a chance anyway was, other than politics. Yeah, yeah. So, so what we said, I think, after the race was that that Russell basically ruined his own strategy in a way because his strategy would have been to conserve tires at that phase, but it was more important for him to stay ahead of of Lewis Hamilton use up a little bit of the tires and go, no, 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 I am faster. I'm faster. But obviously that affects your, your, your strategy later. But what that tells me from a political point of view in an unearned uh, guess is that I think Russell is being, is set out in that team as the number two driver, but he knows if he can score little wins, there is just a chance that he gets far enough ahead that he is then, you know, considered the the number one driver at some point, and and maybe that convinces Lewis Hamilton that enough's enough, and there's a big political game going on there. It was a little cheeky from Russell. I, I've got the feeling that the dynamic in that team is on paper. Of course, you can race, but I think the I think that is still Hamilton's team, and Russell is very much being looked at for the future. It was just it was such a great insight into into everyone's minds. Yeah, I, I think. I think from my experience with Mercedes, I was like, I kind of expected this was going to be the case last year. And then mm. obviously things happened. And I, 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 my, my kind of thought based on no knowledge whatsoever, like just guessing. Ah, just was, guess. Was, we don't mind. It's missed Apex. Just, hey, no, look, if, you get on, like, if you get on the big boys ones, they're going to want a little bit more, you know, caveat. <laughs> you're, in the, you're in the shed, Mike. Don't worry about it. This is the big one. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I thought last year would, would be a case of, yeah, if they had a competitive car, yeah, let Lewis win his eighth championship, support him, and then the team shows afterwards. 
So, so in terms of this year, I'm I kind of feel the more on an even footing this year, um, and it's it's. I don't know as well with the kind of changing kind of structure and everything which yeah. has happened with the team. I don't know whether they are now kind of starting to look at the future and almost kind of, yeah, ruled out this season. I mean, well, we can rule out this yeah. season. Red Bull's going to win all 23, but that's... Um... I think I think it's up for grabs for Russell more this season. So Russell could yes. stamp himself as the number one this season. It wasn't really on last season. Yeah. Whatever was happening with the experiments and points. Uh, sorry, Mike. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, go on. Go on, Mike. Sorry. No, no, no. no. Yeah, does. I, I agree with you as well. I kind of feel that, yeah, they're, they're free to race, and I don't think that either of them is going to get any special treatment this year. Matthew? Well, there is one other team on the grid with a similar ish situation, and that would be Red Bull. <laughs> it's where be Perez scored a win. But the question I have for you, because you've, you've watched two races and you've seen them. It just, uh, from the outside, looks like Perez has, or Red Bull has a much more neutral car that Perez is able to drive a lot closer to Max. I mean, I was really impressed with his second stint when the two of them were both in free air. Max wasn't really making any headway. Does he have maybe a little bit more of a chance at extra race wins? Or do you really think he's like, as everyone is quote unquote saying, that he's he's much more circuit specific? Um. I'd agree with you. I, I kind of feel that um, it, the car does look a little bit better suited to Perez this year. I mean, and like you said, that second stint was, yeah, he he, he knew what Max was doing and he just matched him. So it was it was it was a very deserved win. And yeah, like literally, Max couldn't do anything about it. Um, whether it's is it circuit specific, potentially. I think Perez does have a style which kind of makes him suit certain certain circuits better than others whereas max is obviously that bit more all round anywhere he goes he, he's pretty up fast and all right good driver so i think it'll be interesting to see what happens this weekend as well i mean just obviously make sure that there's no reliability issues for Perez either oh reliability just... issues that's interesting because there was a quote-unquote <laughs> drive shaft problem in the race but eddie jordan who, as I've always said, is speaks truth and nothing but the truth, it said on the Formula 4 Success podcast, I think Max concocted something about a drive shaft to make himself look good. I'm absolutely convinced that he was told before he went out that if Checo is leading, you do not have permission to pass him. There's some really interesting politics going on there. I, I don't see that. But what, what Mr. Jordan's uh, is painting a picture of is, is basically Max going, nah, I could have. I definitely could have overtaken Perez, but the drive shaft thing. And, and the whole time the team was going, well, we can't see anything. I mean, it's fine. Eddie Jordan has a reputation for this kind of thing, but it's um, it's a fun it's a fun little snippet. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I, I, I think it'll be interesting this season between the two of them. Unfortunately, that's, that's where we're, I think the majority of races we're going to have to look for entertainment. So <laughs> let's hope Perez is generally closer to it. Um, I'm a little bit curious uh, because Ferrari, who we've talked about their mistakes already, uh, came out after the race. I think it was uh, Carlos Sainz and said that the issue they're having with the car and especially with managing the tires is one that they feel they have correlation with in the wind tunnel. So question one is, have you ever been on a team where there that sort of a thing has happened? And what are the odds that they could at least make this a bit closer? with development in this season, if that statement is true? 
so yes, definitely been involved in a team which um yeah has had the issues with the tires um and you can see it you can see it very it's it's generally a case i mean i don't know the it could be a number of things but i think it's um kind of issue where you'll you'll have a sudden loss of downforce in certain specific areas of the of the kind of cornering phase unfortunately that just causes the tires to slide a bit more and then you're going to struggle to kind of get around it in, in that respect so it's you so yeah uses ties up more plus you you'll lose a bit of time so potentially on a kind of like a one lap run because you, you're pushing the car to the limit so much, you don't get that issue. But when you're trying to manage it and throughout the run as the tyres go, you're just going to slide them, slide them, and it just takes that little bit out more. So, yeah, um, whether they can develop it to um, to get out of it, I mean, it's that from past experience with team I was with um, when they didn't, it was a difficult one. You never quite gain it back. So. Um, so yeah, it's it's going to be not an easy fix um, unless they know exactly what it is. But I mean, if they can see it in the wind tunnel, that's one thing. But actually trying to figure it out because they're all interlaced parts in terms of this causes this to happen, this causes them to happen. So you can't just change one tiny little bit and fix it. So it's, um, hmm. well, maybe you can, but it's very rare in an aerodynamic point of view that, that you can just change one little bit and you're suddenly going to gain all your kind of tyre performance back. Okay, so fast forward to Interlagos. Where are they on the fastest teams scale by that point? Let's have a guess. Let's have a wag. Have a guess. Let's have a wag. I'd I'd say they'll be. I mean, they're still going to be up there. They're going to be well, definitely not first. Um, yeah, they're going to be second or third fastest. It All just right. depends on. Yeah, they, they'll be remain. I mean, the second, third, fourth teams, I think, are going to be very, very much interchangeable throughout the season, depending on what circuit it is. Yeah, so, so I don't think, any, and, and I don't think really anyone else is going to get up to the point of mixing it with them at that point. So uh, I just put a little pin in what you were talking about earlier with the the strategy, and the the thing that stuck out there is it's not all team strategists sat there in an island by themselves. There's this, there's this, there's this cascade effect when when teams start pitting. A, you get to have a look at how a different tyre is responding. So, you know, uh, Hamilton was like the sacrificial lamb. Everyone got to look at his hard tyre data and see how the hards were were doing. But um, Red Bull were really great for this during the kind of 2017, 2018 period when they were sitting at a third but developing well. They would be really aggressive with that undercut and they sometimes dictated the whole strategy of races. And I think there was a lot of races during that period that would have been one-stops if it wasn't for Red Bull scaring everyone with these with the undercuts, and uh, so it's it's a much more kind of dynamic picture than I think we get from our sofas, where we just think, oh, well, we would just uh, do the softs and then the hards, or or we'd do soft, soft, hard to get through this. Really, it's um it's a very fluid situation. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think the Red Bull situation a couple of years back was um they were in like that kind of beautiful place in a strategist land where. <laughs> You didn't really have any threats from behind, so you could try and like. And if you didn't do anything really different, you'd end up where you started. So mm. they had like had that nice place where right. Well, we need to do something a little bit aggressive or a little bit different. And worst thing that happens is okay, we we'll, we drop back and we finish thirty seconds behind the the leading leading few, but we're still thirty seconds ahead of everyone else. Um, so there might there might not be teams who have that kind of benefit this year because the, the field is that little bit closer t- together. Um, 
but yeah, it's, it is very much dynamic and it's, it's dynamic in a sense that you'll try and plan out a race before you go into it. So like on a Saturday night, Sunday morning, you'll look at kind of look at a planner. You obviously don't know exactly what's going to happen at the start. You don't know what mm. kind of positions are going to change, who's going to crash out, et cetera, but you'll have different plans for kind of, if you maintain your position, if you gain positions, et cetera. And then you try and look at kind of your first bit is, well, I want to kind of look at where, where there's going to be a window opening up. Where, where do we expect our paces to be? So it's going to be a window and who's going to make that first stop and, and, Depends on what start tide are on, etc. So going into like last weekend, you, you'll have looked at it and, like they say, those midfield teams because the pace is quite tight. You generally know if you're a midfield team, if there's been no unexpected pit stops first, the first person to make the stop is going to drop back to basically last on the grid. Um, and you, you kind of just want to make sure that you kind of you're in the right window with your tires, but you can go into a bit of free air and you can exploit it, and you're not going to kind of in two laps catch up with the slowest cars and then mess around fighting with them and etc. Um and then it'll cause that trigger off there and it, it's it's all about kind of just balancing yeah. out that kind of tie life with um with with where you can get that free air to exploit it. It's almost like they should be speaking to the strategists on the pit wall and not the CEO at some point because you know I'm I'm not sure how much you know Christian Horner or or Seidel or, or um, Zach Brown are really involved in that. And that's probably the most interesting chess match that we as viewers don't really get to see. Yeah, no, exactly. And it's 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 one thing which I kind of, I've, I've been pushing for for a while in terms of like the graphics on TV as well, just aren't, aren't good enough in showing what you're going on because you're watching it and you kind of like looking, you see this kind of timing score down the side, you know, like, okay, but who's pitted? Who hasn't pitted? What's the gap yes. between these? Where's mm-hmm. this pit window? Like, kind of where where what happens if this person pits and where they're going to fall out and that's kind of information you you want to see it first and then you can start explaining the story of what's actually going to happen in the race because because you'll be like you can be starting a screen of why aren't they pitted why aren't they pitted yet probably said it was going to be 12 laps but the reason why is because they're going to drop behind five cars who are all fighting <laughs> each other and you you're just going to lose a lot of time I think I think we need to get I think we need to get Mike on a on a Zoom call during races, Matt, and then we can sound yeah. clever from from listening to. Basically, we can just watch Mike's face, and when it drops or he starts yelling at the screen, we, we know that that someone's done something wrong. Uh, okay, so you're you're slightly just sidestepped out of the active strategist role, Mike. There, I've just stated, and I'm not a Red Bull fan, but I, I am an admirer of just how aggressive their how proactive their strategy tends to be. Feel free to answer this however you want. Which team have the best strategy approach? Well, which teams impress you on the grid from a strategy point of view? Long pause from Mike Caulfield. Look, it would be difficult if I said, Mike, who's terrible? Who sucks at strategy? I'm yeah. not doing no, that. No. <laughs> I, I mean, I do think like, yeah, I agree with you. I think Red Bull's, Red Bull's strategy over the last few years has been has been one of the best it's definitely they've kind of adjusted for all the situations they've done the kind of lead in they've done the challenging for the league and then they've, like you said that that bit where they weren't quite the fastest car but they were still putting it themselves in position dictating to do it. races yeah. um so i i think they've yeah i think they've definitely got one of the the best structures in place um I think Mercedes have done well over the years as well. Though it's it's always different, different kind of going from, especially when you've been so dominant, dominant for a yeah. number of years, to then being a team which is then having to kind of make some considerations of out from um, 
from what they didn't have to before. So it's that kind of changing in that mindset of where you were trying to make sure you didn't do anything stupid for because as a strategist as well, if you're challenging, if you're racing for the win, the worst that can happen is chucking away the win. Whereas if you're in the midfield, you can try something that a little bit more aggressive and you go, okay, we could have mm. got seventh, we got eighth instead. And they're like, no one really knows. You know yourself. Yeah. And like, personally, if it's me, I'm gutted if that happens, but you don't get the kind of media backlash when, when it does happen. Well, but if you, if you, if you get a podium from that, then you look like a, a genius. Yeah. I mean, and this is kind of why strategy is such a, it's not just a kind of numbers based science as there's, there's it's i'm not going to say it's an art form because that's just that's a bit, bit actually it's more of an art yeah. <laughs> and no but like it's it's there's a lot of personalities behind it as well so i mean you've got you've got 10 strategists or 10 head of strategies on the grid and if you like put cars all the same pace and you gave like everyone had the day and like you then ran practice ran quality you've obviously got a grid run it You'd probably get sixty percent of the strategies choosing one thing, thirty percent choosing another thing, ten mm. percent and ten percent doing another thing. You'll get you'll still get a lot of different strategies, even though everyone had the same numbers and the same car pace, just because you'll have some people who are that little bit more aggressive. Some people might go for that prefer to take that option where right this strategy will work one time in a hundred, but when it does work, we're <laughs> gonna look like kings. The rest of the time we'll just look like a bit yeah. yeah, yeah, the, 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 the Jensen button in the rain approach. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, but so, so but um, and then because I remember I had to type in theory, I had a conversation when we were in Hass in 2019, yeah, 19 or 20, when the car wasn't very good anyway. One of the two, and like I was having a chat with um, I must be it must have been um, yeah, 19. I was chatting with Kev, and he was kind of going. I don't, I don't care if I finish 11th. I'd rather try something and finish mm. in the points than finish 11th. And like I was showing him these things, I was like, okay, this this strategy here, like, hey, I've got this one strategy here, which requires every little DP thing. It's like, this happens here, this happens here, this happens. He's going, let's try. And I said, and I never said to him, I said, yeah, this is one strategy out of hundred thousand I've run here. I love it. <laughs> it's like, so the, the, these are the odds of this actually happening. But um, he still wanted to try it anyway. I love and it. Then and came back after. Did it work? And it didn't. No, no idea, cousin. <laughs> didn't. Didn't so you're like, okay, if these twelve miracles happen, we're P six and we look like heroes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, mm. and that's and that's it. But like, yeah, you, you kind of balance it up. And and sometimes, I mean, there's more calculated approaches where like it's, it's I'm being I'm being really exaggerating on some of the effects, but a lot of the times you do require like a safety car coming out in a really opportune moment and and everything. But if you don't try this, all you're going to do is end up 14th having started 15th. So it's, it's worth trying something for some people. Well, I think sort of a classic example of that might've been last year at Albert park with the uh, Albin changing tire, going to the last lap, changing tires and, and winding up with points. So like, what was your biggest, like, what was your biggest jackpot, the longest <laughs> odds strategy you ever ran that, that made you look like a king for a day? <laughs> um, so it wasn't a, so, so my one was the, the ballsy move in Hungary where we, we pitted up on the, after the formation lap to get off the Ooh. wet tires. Um, we got penalty for it. Undeserved <laughs> in my opinion. Um, but we still got points with one car. Would have got double points if it weren't for the penalties. Um, yeah, but everyone else went onto the grid on wet tires. We truck dries on, and then after four laps, we were running. I think it was third and fourth, and obviously then the pace. Oh, yes. I mean, and this was in twenty twenty, but mm. so the car was the worst car on the field. So it's it's not like, but it's um, it was the only chance of us getting points, and it was <laughs> worth a risk. 
Yeah, let's take it. All right, let's talk percentages. It's very common in Formula One that, you know, they say it's it's this much car, it's this much driver. And I think a lot of people settle around the, well, it's 85% car, but the driver can make a 15% difference, you know, from the best driver to the worst driver. Let's let's um, let's carve out a, a strategist piece of that pie. How much difference can a good strategist make to, I don't know, if Matt was doing it? Um, it's It's... I mean, obviously, I don't want to put myself out of a job, so it's um, <laughs> a good chunk, a good chunk in that. Um, but no, I mean, easily eighty percent. Easy, yeah. So, so, I mean, it's the most important factor. Yeah, yeah that's what. Um, but no, I mean, it's it's like I said, it's there's potential for like getting points here and there, like in picking up, and it's you've got, got to put it relative. But I will say, go back to that hash year we had when the car was in, in awful in in twenty twenty um, or twenty twenty one, even worse. Um, and it it was it was pretty hard because no matter what you did, you knew you were kind of fighting a losing battle because your car was just so far off. So in that sense, your strategist, you, you really haven't got much chance whatsoever. However, if you're in that kind of position where you're going for race wins or even a kind of strong midfield team, then the strategist does have, I think, quite a significant impact in in what can be potentially go right. Yeah. I mean, and I always kind of refer to it as well as like. Um, one one driver, I won't name him, um, but he kind of, I, I never he never seems to get any credit when I did good strategies, but I um, always got the blame, obviously, when the strategies went wrong. Um, so I kind of I always refer it to a, like an airline pilot, but they're expected to land the plane. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so you're expected to get the good strategy. If you get it wrong, you, you're going to get in trouble. Actually, it was a terrible question to ask, saying what percentage is, is down to the strategist when your, you know, your last car was towards the back end of the grid? Because you were hardly going to go, that was a great car with brilliant drivers. <laughs> but because I just kept rolling the dice wrong, uh, that's why it was at the back of the grid. Uh, Mike Caulfield, thank you so much for your time. It's been fascinating to get this insight and uh, people should follow you at Mike Caulfield F1. The links will be in the show notes below, but thank you very much for joining us in the shed. No, thank you very much. No, it's been good. Cheers. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
Hi, today I'm going to take you back to a Formula One from a long, long time ago in a regulation set far, far away from our own. Back in a time when Formula One had just been liberated from the Scuderia Death Star and the all-powerful Darth Schumacher by a young new hope called Fernando Alonso. But it's not about Fernando or El Plan. Our tale takes place before retired champion Sebastian Vettel even turned a wheel in Formula One. Lewis Hamilton was dicing in the Junior Series and Red Bull were powered by a Ferrari engine. Our tale is a tale of a hundred days. A hundred days to get an F1 team onto the grid and beyond. Today we tell the tale of Super Aguri and I am welcoming the man that was the technical big dog at Super Aguri and one of the most successful Formula E bosses around. It's Mark Preston. Thanks so much for joining us, Mark. Thank you. It's going to be fun to talk about the history of a Super Aguri. Well, I hope you don't mind us having story time with with Uncle Mark. And the thing is, it doesn't feel like it's a long time ago when you just say, oh, 2006, 2007. But in Formula One terms, it's an eon ago. It is, isn't it? I can hardly remember how far back it was. It's uh, yeah, good, to, good to talk about it. Yeah, and so um, so you you are familiar with some of the people on our panel. So Uncle Joe, Uncle Joe Saywood, has uh, has stormed the paddock, and you've had to face him down in in media. Is he as formidable as he seems in the shed? Ah, uh, yes. Um, when I first became technical director in Formula One, I was warned by my uh, PR person that you're about to meet the formidable Joe Saywood, and be ready, be scared. And uh, <laughs> and I was, but it was a great conversation the first time I was interviewed by him. And it's a, it's a really interesting path that Super Aguri took into Formula One because the first gar- car was basically the the SA05, so after the year that it was developed, and it was essentially an upgraded 2002 Arrows car. And that seems insane in modern F1 terms. You could never try and enter F1 now with a, a three-year-old car and just try and make it good. Yeah, it was, a, it was a funny story because obviously I'd worked at Arrows and um, I'd been heavily involved in that. A23 from Arrows, and so I knew, you know, I knew it backwards, I knew it forwards. I, I, I'd, I'd been really involved in it, and um, I'd known that um, Paul Stoddart had bought all of the assets of Arrows and had them down in Ledbury. So I'd, I'd actually gone and seen him the year before, and said, "So have you got everything?" He's like, "Yeah, yeah, come and have a look at everything." And I said, I was looking around, mm. opening drawers and things like that, and going, "Oh yeah, I know where that is. I know what that is. Okay, cool." And so when um, the whole thing kicked off, um, we rang him up and said, can we buy it all back, please? So uh, it was quite a funny, funny story. Um, I had actually, the, the reason I knew it was possible was after I was at Arrows. Yeah. Sorry. No, no, this is what I was going to ask, because I, I, I couldn't find like any big headline, but I just found one headline from like 2005 that said, Mark Preston delays plans to join Super Aguri. Were those plans for Preston F1? Oh my goodness. So you actually had, and that's an amazing thing. Like when you see the likes of like Jackie Stewart, you know, struggling to, to make that work. And you thought, yep, I fancy a Mark Preston F1 team. I, uh, yes, yeah, so I thought that was possible because I went off to McLaren after being at, um, at Arrows and we did the, uh, the famous, like what I call now the technology demonstrator, the MP418A that never raced. And, um, what happened in that situation was we actually had to take the previous year's car and put all the, the newest ideas on it and, and basically race it in, in the following year. So I knew it was possible to take a one-year-old car 
put all this technology on it and we're at McLaren. So, hey, we could do it at um, Super Yuri. See, this is very much more reminiscent of like films like Rush, you know, where it's a, a few guys with a garage and you're just in your, your blank green or grey overalls or covered in oil going, I think we can get this on the grid and we can make it work. And that's why I said, you know, 2005 doesn't seem like a long time ago but in f1 terms it really is like it's ancient history you could never you could never go in with that attitude now could you probably not i think the the cars are so much more complicated you know the engines Mm. are so much more complicated than they were back then um but it was it was a fun time because many of the suppliers that we normally used in in f1 i remember when we're doing the fire up one night 4 a.m in the morning there was a problem with the one of the radiators and the guy who owned the radiator company he came and uh, he came to us and and he said, "Give it to me, I'll fix the radiator." So the guy who made radiators <laughs> for the last I don't know thirty years yeah. was with us at four a.m. in the morning and said, "No, no, give it to me, I'll fix it and put it back in the car." There was such a, a sort of a, a groundswell of support around us. All the supply chain in the UK just wanted us to uh, make it happen. Extract everybody. It was it was amazing. So wh- what's the crossover point from? I'm going to be I'm going to be like the the next Jackie Stewart entering the fray or the next. Uh, Frank Williams, you know, Preston F1 into Super Aguri. Is that is that a sad story or is that a, an opportunity taken? It's an opportunity taken. We're just about to give up on the craziest, you know, idea since uh, sliced bread. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then along came Aguri with obviously Takuma, Honda, Bridgestone, all the pieces of the puzzle from that sort of thing. But he was like, okay, now we have to do a team. And we said, well, we're ready to do a team. We know who we're, who we're <laughs> going to hire. We know how we're going to do it. And so it was one of those weird moments when the two things just collide. It was incredible. Okay, well, how much of an exaggeration is it to say that Super Aguri had the soul of Preston F1 that never was? <laughs> um, a fair amount, actually, because uh, <laughs> most of the guys that ended up running the team had, had been with me for the last the previous year looking at what we could do. A, a number of ex-Arrows um, people, ex-Jordan, ex um other teams and so we're all kind of ready to go and about to give up and then all of a sudden this all happened in a matter of weeks yeah and it's it's unusually quick that timeline from saying right this is going to be an entity in f1 to getting to the grid uh but there's 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 a relationship with honda in there so it's not it's not quite a privateer team it's something that we argue about on mistake Apex all the time is i always want there to be an opportunity for people to come in almost like a customer team with the backing of not just an engine supplier but full support but you know you've you've come in with essentially an upgraded three-year-old arrows car and then moving on to using or or trying to use a, a honda chassis what was that relationship like with with honda honda was incredible they it, it's still legendary inside of honda so i still you know meet young <laughs> honda guys and oh, they is go, oh Mark Son, no, you're I... the, you know. <laughs> So there's still a lot of there's still a lot of love for what we did inside of Honda. It was it was pretty crazy for even for even them actually internally. And it was interesting. They gave us some of the most experienced Honda guys that you've ever met. And I'm still friends with a lot of them. So they they gave us an incredible amount of support. And it would not have been possible if they hadn't have put their full force behind what we were doing. Um, but they're also a bit surprised because they didn't also know if we could we could do it. So uh, yeah, that was pretty amazing. Well, I don't think they were alone. In, in wondering whether you could do it. But actually, actually, it's nice to hear something so positive about Honda because perhaps their reputation has taken a little bit of a kicking with the GP2 engine. And then just as they were getting good, kind of Red Bull seemed to have parked their relationship. And then, of course, they sort of famously 
let go of their team, handed it over to, to Braun and, and lost out on winning a world championship. So we've not heard a lot of positivity and we've heard a lot about the cultural differences. So it's nice to hear, like you just saying, no, they're a, you know, a great organisation and a, and a great team. Yeah, we had some amazing characters in, in our team. Many of them that had been on the original McLarens, etc., back in the the early days of the the eighties, winning winning championships. Oh, so we yeah. had some we had some pretty incredible and uh, incredible characters that really really wanted us to to get succeed and get to the grid. And and then obviously um, we caused uh, the main team a little bit of hassle in their in their second year. Uh, that are keeping up with them or leading them at least into the the first half of the season. So, so let's um for people who have perhaps uh, you know new to Formula One, not heard of Super Aguri. So we're talking about the seasons here between uh, 2006, 2007, 2008. That was the three contested seasons. But I, I'd like to hone in on uh, what we talked about earlier, which was the the modified Arrows car. And so, what's the thinking behind that? Because that couldn't have been like a long term solution. Was that just a, we need to get our car and our name and our drivers on the grid? There was a lot of confusion at the time because they were saying we'd have B teams in Formula One. So even I think ProDrive ah. might have been rumoured to have been a, a, a B team, obviously. Um, Sorry, say that name again uh, that was rumoured to be a B team? Uh, it was going to be ProDrive. Um, oh, right. At the time, there was a discussion whether they were going to answer as well. Obviously, um, Red Bull bought um, Minardi. And, and became it became their B team, which is yeah. obviously now um, Toro Rosso. So there was a bit of confusion at the time as to how the rules were going to work out. And so because there was a bit of confusion, the only way we could get to the grid was going to the Arrows plan. Right. So that's what that's why it went that way. And everyone was like thought we were crazy. But I remember uh, Aguri said, "So how slow will we be?" And we said, um, "I think we're going to be five point five seconds off the off the pace." And he said, okay, is that okay? And weirdly, <laughs> that was the year that they got rid yeah. of the 7% rule. Right. So we were confident that we wouldn't get kicked out, and we were confident that we would qualify, but we were quite confident we would be 5.5 seconds off the pace. And, and we, should, um, we should say that that is as massive as it sounds. That was a big, that was a big deficit. Yeah, and by the, the, the thing I think we were all most proud of, and even Honda, was that by the end of the year, we're only a second off the grid, off the, off the Ferraris. Um, but that yeah. was with a lot of help from Bridgestone. That was when the tyre war was. And so we were obviously partnered with Bridgestone. So that meant that we had some some good tyres, let's say, um, for that battle. And so we were most proud from going 5.5 seconds off to one and a half seconds off or one second off in, in Brazil. And that was an incredible ride, let's say. So that must have, in a way, been a magical time, even though you're, I, I, you had one driver five seconds off. So you, you, that was the, the the best of it. You had one driver nine seconds off at, at one point. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. So, the, yeah. <laughs> so, but from a pure kind of engineering point of view, you know, I think you and I are, are uh, coverall donning spanner monkeys at heart. That yeah. must have been just like almost like a, you know, a duct tape and sellotape type project to get onto the grid. And in a way, like surely that's like the most joyful like, mechanic experience, even for a head technical guy. Everybody in the team absolutely loved it, still loves it, still talks about that time and says, I wish we could go back to that year. I mean, it was mental. I don't think, I think we got off Christmas Day um, for when we were um, when we were planning the uh, planning the team. But I don't, I don't think we had a weekend off, a Sunday off, anything until we got to the grid. But time flew by and nobody cared. It was, uh, it was an amazing experience. And by the end of that year, um, a number of the teams had seen what we were doing. So... There's a picture you can search on the internet of 
at the end of the year, there's a mixture of um, Renault mechanics and Super Aguri mechanics. What happened was they brought the champagne down to the other end of the oh, pit lane <laughs> to congratulate all the mechanics for working so hard. They'd seen oh. us all working hard during the year. And we had some fun times when we realized we couldn't be quick. So we had to figure out ways that we could win. So we had to have little wins. So there's a there's a classic one where, you know, in the starting grid where obviously they, they take the tire warmers off and then the cars, you know, head off down, um, head around the uh, formation lap. What we realized was one day I was watching the watching the grid and I saw that Ferrari would always be the last people to take the tire warmers off. And I was like, you know what, we could beat them at that. And so the next race, you know, it doesn't matter if we get disqualified or we get a penalty because <laughs> we're at the back of the grid. Yeah. So we realized this is a very visual thing on the, on the TV. So we worked with the mechanics and we went later than Ferrari. So when you see the big the, the, the shot looking at the grid, you'll see everyone, the mechanics take the tire warmers mm. off in those days. But Ferrari and Renault would still have the tire warmers on and Super Aguri at the back. Nice. And so it was very visual on the, on the TV. <laughs> And and so we were um we uh we waited and waited and waited and they pulled their the tire warmers off and then we waited and the TV people were going what are they doing at the back of the grid oh, and then all of a sudden we took ours off <laughs> that's so glorious it was one of those um you know crazy crazy stories I I do wonder like you know if teams at the back of the grid do do things to get on the telly and now I know now I've confirmed it's true sorry say that again I just got cut off by Siri. <laughs> ah, so uh, I did always wonder as an F1 fan whether, you know, teams down the back end of the grid ever did things to get on TV. And, and it's a delight to know that's true. We also took a lot of the other variables like pit stops. Back in those days, you could actually compete. Uh, I don't know if I, we could have competed nowadays on the one point something second pit stops. But we also tried to win the fastest pit stop. There was things like when the drivers come into the pits. They try to um, sort of attack the line, as they call right. it. So, you know, the line when you enter the pits and you have to get down to the pit lane speed, the speed at which you can get to that line and break yeah. and get to the and get to the speed in pit lane. We used to try and beat that time. And then so what happened was that the big teams realized what we were doing, because I'm sure we showed up on their on their screens. Why is this Super Aguri guys <laughs> winning these little things? And um, then they came, came the, the, the mechanics came and asked us, what are you guys doing? We we're like. We can't win, but we could beat you at some things. That's so we try to beat you at the little things. So if you look at the Super Aguri 2006 Top Trumps card, you might have like yeah. pace down at four, uh, <laughs> a, a, you know, resources down at five, but pit lane entry, ten. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, tire warming, uh, tire blanket chicken, nine. You know, so yeah, that's pretty yeah, good. Exactly, yeah. I, no, I love that. To most people. <laughs> I lo- and I love the fact that there was respect from, from Renault, who, who, you know, we have to remember were champions at that time. So Fernando Alonso won the 2006 and 2005 World Championships with Renault back to back before moving to McLaren. But the, the visual of those guys coming down to the back of the grid with champagne is wonderful. It was just the coolest thing ever. It's the, one of the best photos you, that we've still got from the time of, uh, <laughs> of that, that experience. And, and actually, that was going to be my next question, which was, how were you treated by the other teams in the paddock? Because the stories I read, obviously, were that there needed to be agreement from all the teams at that time. And I believe Midland were a team that put up resistance. And then, and then Williams, if we sort of skip ahead a little bit to the, the first non-Arrows chassis, also were objecting to that. So apart from the Renault love-in, how was the reaction from the other teams? 
Yeah, I mean, Midland wasn't very happy that we were coming in. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, the top 10 Concord agreement and everything, there is a there is a sliding scale of um, earnings and yeah. those kind of things. So it does have an impact, which is obviously one of the discussion points they're having at the moment, isn't it, with the with the new teams entering. So, yeah, it was a, it was a bit of a stress. We didn't know that we were going to actually get there until the, until the FI eventually um, allowed us with a late entry uh, to, to come to the grid. But because the Honda was involved, of course, there was a lot of um, lot of uh, help, let's say, to to get their their second team in um, into the into the series. But okay, so there's two questions there. A was it too much help because you were literally using a, a year old chassis and admitting to it? It wasn't like a sneaky crime. It wasn't like you know the Aston Martin brake duct gate or the <laughs> what did they call it the the pink Mercedes. Oh. Uh, yeah. a couple of years back no this was no we're using the the chassis from the previous year and then that was the the intent at the time was that b teams were they were mm. looking at how b teams could actually operate and you know the idea was generally we could take a one-year-old car and most people thought that was going to be impossible and obviously we took a three-year-old car and yeah. showed that it was possible <laughs> just um, about <laughs> so <laughs> we weren't going to be super quick but we certainly had a lot of fun uh a lot of fun trying um so yeah that was uh it was yeah that was how it was meant to be and that's why um we were able to do it at least for a year or two and and then we would have had to figure it out like um like we also did um to continue on as a, as their own team so now a little bit out of formula one specifically and you look at the state of formula one there were there was a time when they were they were moving more towards customer teams or or uh or like you could go and just purchase a, a chassis or they were going to make it a little bit more of a spec series all those kind of arguments have kind of seemed to have been shelved and it does look like formula one wants to be more of a, a works team like a manufacturer series but at that time like if you're looking back now would you have wished that would have continued because I, I like the idea of a mark preston being able to come in buy a two-year-old chassis and go racing and have a 30 car grid yeah, I mean, that's that sort of, for me, it goes back to the really, really old days, isn't it? The Brabham's and everybody who actually, you know, built their, built their own car, got an engine from this guy, got a, got a bits and pieces from somebody else and went, and went racing. It's certainly the kind of old romantic, uh, old romantic side of, of motor racing. And so I think that bit is, that bit is quite cool. Um, whether or not you could continue to compete nowadays, I'm not quite sure. Uh, but, uh, it was certainly a fun time, and um, I'm glad we got to do it. Yeah, but I certainly, I sort of feel like like Formula One as an organisation has has actively moved away from that, and they they would rather have they'd rather have Audi come in with or, or you know people with pedigree coming in and have even to have Alfa Romeo rebadged on Sauber than have Sauber. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting, isn't it, to to see what you know what should be done what should be done nowadays. Um, it was still it was still a cool time, and as I say, I'm, I'm glad we got to do it. I the the idea, you know, you say that um, maybe it's not the same now, but you know, am I correct in saying that um, that Aston Martin uses uh, Mercedes gearbox, right? Sure. Um, and that's a, so one of the elements of it is where do you spend your resources? And what we did was we got given a we had a car from um, from Honda, obviously. So what did we do? We focused on the areas where we knew we could differentiate from them, which mm. was tires at the time. So for me, it's engine aero tires, the three biggest, most important things. And so we had a Honda engine, um, we had Bridgestone tires, and it turned out that we were really good at tires. And so um, 
Therefore, we were able to keep up by putting a lot of effort into tires. And so, you know, when you think about how much resource goes into a gearbox, it's it's ridiculous um, because it's a complicated thing, a really super complicated thing. So in some ways, there, there is still a lot of sharing of R&D because you can, you know, use an engine and a gearbox. That takes a lot of effort away from what you what you need to do. Now, wonderfully and unbelievably, I know that you're actually a Missed Apex podcast listener, so you will know that me and my co-host argue about tyres and I try to steer the conversation away. But just to save a phone call from Matt when he listens back to this, why was Super Aguri strong on tyres? Because we had a great relationship with Bridgestone. Now uh, then, Aguri... now then. <laughs> no, because I, I, I assign nine of Michael Schumacher's seven titles to the fact that they had Bridgestone tyres? Tyres are the most important thing. And um, I <laughs> probably my best experience of this was way back when I was doing Formula Fords in Australia. Oh, wow. We no aero, no aero. Tire testing, but all about tyres. Yeah. And we were able to help choose the tyres. And so we chose the tyres that were best for us. And you can see that what from that experience, since, since then to now, I've focused incredibly on the tyres. And they make an incredible difference. And so Aguri had been uh, a Bridgestone-tired uh, driver since his karting days. And so we had a great relationship with oh, Bridgestone. I see. Yeah. And obviously there was a, a tyre war going on. So we had a lot of support from Bridgestone. They were one of our sponsors as well. And uh, that's how we helped to... That was one of the reasons we were able to get to within one and a half seconds of the Ferraris by the end of the year with a three-year-old chassis was we had Bridgestone tyres. That, that's incredible because the, the fabled stories of the Bridgestone uh, tyres, I think only six only six cars ran the Bridgestone tyres at that time. So that was yep. Ferrari, yourselves, and I've forgotten completely Ooh. now. Yeah, <laughs> Me yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, but uh, basically they had a little bit of an advantage. But the, the, the tale of law is that they were you know designed around Michael Schumacher and that Ferrari had this great relationship with Bridgestone. Hundred percent. And when you, if you can, if you can design your chassis and develop your chassis and aerodynamics around the tires, you can make huge gains. Which is why <laughs> nowadays it's um, so much as a control system because basically they had a great advantage. Oh, this this has been such a, a leap back in in time. I, I have to say because I was in my mid twenties at the time, I thought, oh, this is a little bit of my my darkest period of remembering stuff from Formula One. But all of this is flooding back now, the tyre wars. When was the the Indy Grand Prix, the Indianapolis Grand Prix? Oh, I wasn't at that one. Ah, that so that must have been 2005, perhaps. Yeah, I think right. so, yes. So, yes, so just for anyone a... <laughs> listening, that is uh, basically the Bridgestones were the only tyres that were allowed in the end to run. The rest of the teams withdrew, so there was only six cars on the, the starting grid. But you weren't involved in that so we, we can't that <laughs> ah, i thought i could find a new person to blame for that um i guess the other interesting thing from your relationship with honda was the the driver so tell us a little bit about the the driver selection I, I know it ends up with anthony davison but it doesn't start as perhaps as uh, glamorously as that yeah obviously um takuma we had uh takuma was, was one Sata, of the reasons yeah. why yeah um we we basically were, were started um, because um, Takuma needed a drive, and um, we basically uh, took him on, obviously. And we had Yuji Idi, we had um, Sakon Yamamoto, uh, we had Frank Montani was there at one point. He was incredible as our as our third driver. That's when you had T cars, so the spare yeah. car that ran on ran on a Friday. 
Um, and obviously Anthony Davidson, who did an amazing job for us. And the, the two, having him and Takuma was, um, was really, really great fun. So when you, you see Anthony Davidson with his, with his analysis on the Skypad and just he just has this deep understanding of driving. And I believe like things like being hired by the Strolls to, to, to teach Lance Stroll in a two-year-old Williams before he came into Formula One. Like he is a he's a massively impressive driver, and I remember at the time, like, oh, there's a new British driver in, but he didn't spend too much time at the the sharp end of the grid. But I feel like you would have good things to say about him. Oh yeah, we had a great time. It was a it was a really fun time, as I say, <laughs> over those couple of years um, at Superguri, and and he was at you know, in in the central uh, in the central. Uh, part of making us quick with him and Takuma together we had a really really great uh, driver pairing so it might have been one of the more low-key uh, driver pairings really because neither of those guys got to be at the very sharp end but I like you know like Sato moving on with his American career Anthony Davidson massively respected now like how you must have been pretty pleased in the end to end up with a driver pairing like that oh yeah it was great and and they had a different styles. um so Takuma was a more of a, a sort of aggressive driver. Anthony was a much more a smoother driver. And what we noticed was that certain tracks, one of them will be better than the other because of the type of track and how it suited each driver's um, style. And so, um, you know, one circuit we say, well, you know, Anthony, you're going to be quicker here than Takuma. And this track, you're going to be quicker than um, than Anthony because of the, the way you drive the, the, and, the and car. And you could see that in advance. And you could be like, sorry, Anthony, we know this is not a, a Davison track. So when you look at the surface of the track, now we're going to get really geeky about it. No, no, fire. please do. I won't understand, <laughs> but our listeners will. So please do. <laughs> when you analyse the type of surface of the track, we could see that some tracks were more um, aggressive on the tyres. And we would say, all right, um, you're going to be able to warm up the tyres quicker at this track, um, Takuma. So you're going to be quicker straight away. And so you're going to be uh, you're going to be a bit slower because this doesn't suit the tyre, the way you warm up tyres and the way you control the tyre wear and, and degradation. And so we did actually start to become able to say, this is going to be your track, this is going to be your track. And it did turn out to be the case. And we continue, and, and all the teams obviously look at this in, in the background. They look at the, the, the roughness of the surface in, in a few different parameters, and they can tell, you know, what sort of track this is going to be, how it's going to put energy into the tyres, and those kind of things. There's a lot of science behind it, as you can imagine. I wonder how much that still goes on today because we, we talk about different driver styles a lot. But as you'd imagine, between 2008 and 2023, you'd imagine the, the driver market and driver skill in general would have evolved. But there, there must still be a nagging feeling, say, in Sainz's mind and go, oh, we're going to Australia. That's not the kind of track that suits me. But we don't really hear about it, maybe because of the PR side of things. I mean, we've still used the same techniques in Formula E. So we took a lot of the same ideas um, from that we'd learned in, in F1 and applied them in Formula E. We, we probably didn't have enough resources. We didn't have a, enough sensors on a Formula E car to be able to measure some of the things you can measure in, in F1. So we can't be sure uh, in Formula E how some of those parameters work. But we um, continue to do some of the same, same types of analysis in, in Formula E as well. And that was certainly part of our success in Formula E was understanding the tyres. So how hard was it to get Anthony Davison in, though? Because when you first started, the, the driver you mentioned, uh, uh, Edie, Yuji yep. Edie, was a yep. 31-year-old Japanese rookie. So I'm yep. going to go ahead and assume there was a big Honda influence in that initial driver lineup. 
that was actually influence of Aguri, actually, because he, he I think ah, he was racing for Aguri yes. in, in Japan. So Aguri runs um, a Super GT team. And also at the time, he would have run a um, Formula Nippon, I think it was called at the time, um, at, at teams there. So Yuji came from one of the, one of the teams in, in um, Formula Nippon. And, and we should uh, do some revision of, uh, of Aguri Suzuki as a driver. What was his history? Yeah, I mean, he's one of the, the most famous um, Japanese drivers because he was on the podium um, in Japan. So that was where he became, you know, super famous. Um, he's still still super famous, of course, uh, in Japan. It's uh, it's amazing when you go around. I mean, one of the stories when we when we went to the Japanese um, Grand Prix for the first time, when we approached the the the, um, the the paddock, let's say, in a car, there was thousands and thousands of Japanese fans just waiting for Aguri and Takuma to really? come to the track. Unbelievable! Amazing. Unbelievable! The amount of fans in the grandstands that had um, Super Aguri flags was Ferrari and Super Aguri. That's what it was like at um, at Suzuka. It was incredible. Absolutely incredible. And, and I think, say, maybe newer American fans and the European fans sometimes forget how popular Formula One is in Japan. And I was, I was a massive Kobayashi fan as well. Really disappointed when his career uh, just, just fizzled out because he did a crowdfund at one point and he got like a million pounds ready to try and buy a seat. And then, and then that didn't work out. And then he, I think he still kept the money and went racing elsewhere yeah. but it went we went a long time without a japanese driver oh i mean it's absolutely crazy when japan was once or twice the the last um race in the season as people were packing down the cars um in the in the last race they, the the japanese fans would still be in the stands until we finished and there used to be this competition like a competition <laughs> of putting inverted who commas and basically people used to blow up the engines at the end of the season. So if you look at the, there's a, there's a, a video on the internet um, about a, a fire up um, at Japan. Basically it's basically the car sitting on its stands and the guys revving the engine um, until and it goes blowing hot. And it didn't blow up that one, but I know that in historically there'd been some years where um, I think um, uh, Jack Villeneuve just came out and just went full throttle, boom, the engine. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it was the end of the season and, and certain teams would do that and certain teams wouldn't do it. If you have that link, I, I will share it with our, our listeners in the in the show notes below. Uh, but to, to sort of focus in, because this conversation has gone longer than I promised, I do apologise, but hopefully we can get you back in the shed at some point. Um, the Super Aguri story isn't one of, obviously it's only three years, but 2007 looked hopeful. There was there was points on the board. So to start with the positivity of that, and then obviously into the inevitable question of of why didn't that then continue? Yeah, I mean, if you if we had, I was actually looking back at it and seeing um, how many points we got. Of course, the points at that time only went down to uh, what was eight, it? eighth, so, I think, eight, at that point, eighth position. Yeah, yeah. So. A couple of times we ended up sixth and we got, we got one point or something or two points. But actually, we, if you'd had the current scoring system, we would have got, <laughs> you know, quite a lot more, quite a lot more points. Um, but sadly, that was the time at which the, there was the financial crash. And right. if you remember, Honda, Toyota, Bridgestone, all of the Japanese companies pulled out of, uh, Formula One at that point. So 
it was pretty much um, at the point of the the big financial crisis, and and Honda pulled oh, out, of, is, out of F one. Is that what led to Honda pulling out of Formula One? I actually didn't know that. Obviously, Braun then took that over in two thousand and nine yep. and won the the drivers' championship that year. Yeah. So yep. I didn't realize there was a link between those two things. So did you feel the shockwaves of Honda support earlier than their eventual withdrawal? Yes. Ah. Yeah. Basically, that was it. Yeah. Basically, that was in a nutshell. But that's a shame because in 2007, it was looking reasonably competitive. And those points weren't fluked points. They were expected yeah. points going forward. So you, did you go into 2008 going, ah, oh, it's back to... It's back to like the you know the duct tape of the arrows car this year. I think everyone was quite hopeful, but there was a lot of things going on in the world that I think some of the ramifications of, yeah. of the financial crash were actually starting to ripple through before it became the the big crash. Um, so we were starting to feel some of those some of those impacts um, before it was you know let's say common knowledge that the, the everything was going wrong in the world. Um, so yeah, we felt them a, a bit earlier. So I had planned to ask you about Formula E and I, I hope you will come back and talk to us because I think if we look a decade ahead or even like two decades ahead, we've got this, we've got a convergence coming with the top tier of motorsport wanting to be road relevant. But I think for today, so that you don't get fed up with me and go, ah, oh, he never let me get back to my dinner. Right. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it on one question mark. Hmm. Are you happy that it was super aguri that you were involved in, or would you have preferred, if you can go back in time, would it have been Preston F1? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think Preston F1 would have actually ever taken off with the same <laughs> uh, vigour, let's say, and had a had a car company like um, Honda behind it. So um, it was an incredible journey, and I really enjoyed working with Aguri and, of course, everybody at, at Super Aguri and Honda and everyone that made it happen. So uh, I'm glad it went that way. Mark Preston, thank you so much for your time. We're going to try and get everyone to swarm you on Twitter and pepper you with questions. And hopefully you'll come and join us in the shed again. Thank you. Been good fun. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. I hope you enjoyed your midweek buffet. Join us on Sunday at 8pm BST. That's UK time, UTC plus one for our Australian Grand Prix race review. If you're a patron... You can catch our Friday live stream, uh, pre-race, me and Matt get together and just chew through what we reckon we can tell from FP1 and FP2. And we divert and tangent and do all our doom scrolly lockdown remain indoors style content. It's essentially me and Matt catching up and inviting our patrons to come along for the ride. But wherever we see you next, work hard, be kind and have fun this was Mr. Apex Podcast.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.